Welcome to World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Robert Berg. Dr. Berg is the Chief of Critical Care and the Russell Raffley Endowed Chair at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's also Professor of Anesthesia and Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Bob, thank you for being with us today. Um, colleagues around the world uh, know that for decades you've been doing research in resuscitation, and in particular pediatric resuscitation. And that work has led to the development of uh, many of the policies that the American Heart Association has put out about uh, best practices, and it's because of your work. Um, I wonder if we could begin by asking you, what, um, where, did this, where did this begin, resuscitation? Meaning, what are the important historical studies um, and you know, moments that we should know about to understand the state of resuscitation? Well, interestingly, um, in the 1950s, there was a, a, an issue that there was high-rise uh, wires being put up with high-energy uh, electricity, and people were getting fibrillated. And uh, they started making these new things called defibrillators that were the size of a, of a whole room back then. And they tried to make them small enough to bring out to where patients were. And while they were studying that, uh, they fibrillated these animals and they put the paddles on the chest. And each time they squeezed on the chest, they noticed that the blood pressure went up. And then they did it again and again until they could, on a regular basis, keep an animal alive for 30 minutes who would not be able to survive for five minutes without these compressions. And they said, oh my gosh, this closed chest massage is what they, they called it, can save the life of these animals. And uh, lo and behold, one of the co-authors who, who was a, uh, um, a fellow in, uh, in cardiothoracic surgery at Johns Hopkins University had a patient who had an arrest uh, after surgery, and he did the same thing he did on the dogs. He did rhythmic compressions on the chest. He then did it on another 19 patients, he and his group. All 20 of the 20 survived to cardiac, their cardiac arrest, which is still the best outcome in the history of uh, CPR in, in the year 1960 it was published, and 14 of the 20 were long-term survivors. And based on this, um, they, uh, they did the next step, which was to show people around the country, cardiologists in particular in the United States, how to do this. And they showed on compatriots that would come on the stage and they would do compressions on their chest and show how to do this in a rhythmic fashion. And they showed essentially the same thing that we do now, to push down about two inches on the chest. Uh, and they, uh, you gotta take your hand off the chest. They showed almost all the identical things in 1960 that we do today. But the one thing that they did uh, in that article that I'm not so happy about is they called a closed chest massage, which gives you the concept that you can just do a nice soft touch like we usually do on television and then kiss somebody and have them come back. And as you probably know, 90% of the time on television and movies, poor CPR is provided and they survive, whereas the opposite is true in real life. 90% of the time for people without a hospital cardiac arrest, even with excellent CPR, 90% of the time, they don't survive. Um, as an example, this slide here shows that arterial blood pressure during CPR in their second study on this eight-year-old boy was 110 over 40. That wasn't soft cardiac massage. That was a very vigorous compression with uh, e enormous force. Around uh, two decades later, 
uh, V99 Kearney at the Children's uh, National Medical Center looked at how they were doing within hospital cardiac arrest there, and it was not nearly so good as, as those first series. There were 53 children, only 9% of them, five of the 53 survived um, to hospital discharge. None of them when the CPR was more than 10 minutes. Uh, so um, uh, because of that, they looked, and, and similar studies were done at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and others, all showing very poor outcomes from in-hospital cardiac arrest. And in fact, the first PALS course didn't even bother with CPR, and they focused on prevention of cardiac arrest by recognition and treatment of, of the cardiac arrest. All around uh, early 1990s, Murray Pollack, uh, when he was doing his original studies developing the PRISM scores, looked at um, the admissions in 32 pediatric intensive care units all over the United States and found out that almost 2%, 1.8% of the patients admitted to the ICUs had a cardiac arrest and only 13% of them survived. Around about 15 years later, V99 Cardi and myself uh, looked at the first thousand, almost thousand kids, 880, in uh, a large in-hospital cardiac arrest registry in the United States called Get With the Guidelines Resuscitation. And by then, 27%, twice as high, survived to, to hospital discharge. And most of those who, who survived hospital discharge, that is 81% of them that survived, had relatively favorable neurological outcomes. That is, they were, uh, uh, the, the best description is the older kids would be able to walk and talk. Really dramatically better than that 13% survival 15 years before. And importantly, we described that, that most of the patients had either acute respiratory insufficiency or hypotension as the cause of their in-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, so Bob, that's a wonderful overview, but what are the best current studies um, about outcome for in-hospital pediatric cardiac arrest? So there's a few things we've learned in the last few years. One of them is that 95% of, of the in-hospital cardiac arrests on wards and ICUs are now in the ICU. Our rapid response teams, our early warning signs have resulted in us getting the patients to an intensive care unit setting in the United States. We've come to the conclusion that in-hospital CPR training should focus on ICU CPR, and really the ward setting, we should focus on recognition of patients at high risk for CPR. More recently, we've, uh, in, as, as um, Murray Pollack did uh, an update, the, the PRISM-3, the third version of the PRISM score, and looked at more than 10,000 PICU uh, admissions in the Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network. 1.4% of those children had a cardiac arrest and required CPR uh, that were admitted. So that's pretty similar to that 1.8% 25 years earlier. But now the survival to discharge rate is 45%. And again, 89% of them that did survive are able to walk and talk. The bottom line, PICU CPR is still a big problem, but outcomes are improving. So Bob, um, could you uh, give us a framework that you use? You know, clearly we think about the patient in the pre-arrest state, and then there's the resuscitation, and then there's the post-arrest state. Is that, the, is that the way you think about conceptually, um, and, and is that the way you study it? Pretty much that's, that's on, the, on the money. We sort of think of four phases. Um, Peter uh, Saffer back in the old days used to talk about the no-flow phase and the low-flow phase. And I think nowadays we really think about the pre-arrest phase, the time at which we have an opportunity to prevent the cardiac arrest or be prepared for it. The no-flow phase, that is untreated cardiac arrest before we start doing CPR. 
the low flow phase of, of, of uh, cardiac arrest when we do CPR. And then finally, when they come back, we have a post-resuscitation or post-cardiac arrest phase. And when, when we think of that, for example, recently we, uh, we looked at, at the, uh, uh, the Near for Kids Registry, the National Emergency Airway Registry for Children uh, that's led by uh, Akira Nishisaki. And uh, we looked at 25 PICUs at over 5,000 tracheal intubations. And 1.7% of the time, the patients needed CPR associated with that tracheal intubation, showing a very high-risk period. Well, knowing that, that's a pre-arrest setting that uh, looking at patients that need tracheal intubation or at high risk, we can start doing some things. And we particularly know that children that have hemodynamic instability have a six-fold increased risk of that happening, and hypoxemic respiratory failure is the cause of their need for tracheal intubation have a fourfold. So patients we commonly see in the ICU, septic patients, hemodynamic unstable, hypoxemic respiratory failure, they have a very high risk of having cardiac arrest. To put this into focus, if you're in an, in an operating room, we used to have 1% incidences of death. It's now one in 10,000 or one in 100,000 by us knowing the high risk situations and preventing them. So for example, in the pre-arrest phase, we could be preparing. When we get ready to tracheal intubate, we're prepared and, we're, and we can perhaps get the hemodynamic status a little bit better Perhaps we can uh, uh, work on uh, giving extra oxygen, 100% uh, oxygen uh, uh, pretreated um, uh, in a very aggressive manner and have medications available to maintain hemodynamic status during the intubation. Um, we could prevent in the, in the pre-arrest phase children that have respiratory failure and shock, we can treat them, diagnose them, treat them and avoid the cardiac arrest or perhaps knowing there's a high risk, take a look at the patients that are having um, tracheal intubations or other high risk events and decide ahead of time are these patients that we should have a do not attempt resuscitation order rather than uh, at the time that the arrest occurs um, uh, commencing with, with uh, interventions that there may not be a good reason to be doing. That's a decision that each physician and team must uh, work with. In any case, we should clearly monitor critically ill patients at high risk of cardiac arrest because we don't want to stay in the no-flow phase. We want to rapidly go from the uh, recognizing the cardiac arrest and doing treatment. Um, and some things we can do is make sure we have rapid response teams or various checklists to get people into the intensive care units that are high risk. Uh, and make sure that we have adequate ICU capacity, which is a problem in the United States and all over the world that um, being able to bring that child up who's very sick is, is a problem. Um, we're increasingly learning in the United States that a non-ICU pediatric cardiac arrest is considered a sentinel event. That is a potentially avoidable harm. And the Children's Hospital Association, of which most of our children's hospitals are members of, now consider it a sentinel event. In the future, there are lots of exciting things that we could be doing already. Uh, Dana Niles and others have, have shown that there are checklists that you can use to predict intensive care unit cardiac arrest. That's an opportunity for prevention. You look at the high-risk patients and, and prevent the rest, or be prepared, getting the right personnel, equipment, in the settings that you think it's a high risk for cardiac arrest. And again, that's also an opportunity for do not attempt resuscitation orders. 
clearly the big thing in the future that everybody talks about, these are sort of uh, exciting uh, uh, concepts in, in this electronic age is that there, there clearly are going to be big data approaches to be able to look at data coming in into our intensive care unit settings from our monitors and other places so that we can pre predict cardiac arrest and be prepared to, uh, and to both prevent and to treat uh, the cardiac arrest. The no-flow phase is very simple. You got to be in a place where you're monitored so that somebody can recognize the cardiac arrest promptly and do something and then switch from the no-flow phase with prompt CPR to the low-flow phase. The low-flow phase is pretty simple. Push hard, push fast. Chest compressions provide the entire cardiac output. Adequate stroke volume depends on pushing hard, as long as you have intravascular volume, and pushing fast in, uh, in order, uh, because your heart rate will depend on, uh, during CPR is directly related to your rate of compressions. So one big question you might ask is, does it work? Is how good can we do? And it turns out that animal data, uh, we obviously don't measure cardiac outputs during CPR. Um, very, uh, uh, there, there's very limited data about that. But we can look at animal studies and show that we can get a cardiac output that's 10 to 25% of normal in normal sinus rhythm. And because of the sympathoadrenal response where you clamp down peripherally and have venoconstriction bring blood back to your chest and uh, arterial vasoconstriction peripherally so the blood flow with each compression goes primarily to the heart and to the brain. We've measured myocardial and cerebral blood flow more than 50% of normal. And given that a lot of our normal flow is luxuriant flow, that's adequate for a while uh, for good outcomes. So Bob, that's a wonderful summary. Uh, but to recap, because um, this is an astonishing fact, if I have this right, even if you're doing optimal CPR uh, at a compression rate of 100 per minute or higher, um, and that your depth of compression and full release is adequate with each compression, even when it's really working, we're still only providing, at best, about 25% of normal cardiac output. Correct. So the essence of moving through a methodical resuscitation step-by-step uh, step following um, each of the recommended um, uh, progression and uh, escalation of therapy, drugs, electricity is primary because time is of the essence, no matter Absolutely. how well you're doing it. Absolutely. Well, so to follow up on that, if, if at best we're providing 25% cardiac output, what do we know about this low flow state? So space? even with only 25% cardiac output, we can get more than 50% of the myocardial blood flow that you have at baseline. But that requires us to have adequate coronary perfusion pressure. So we've known for some period of time that the aortic pressure, when you take your hand off the chest, minus the right atrial pressure, if it, which is the coronary perfusion pressure, drives flow through the myocardium. And if we keep it in, in animal studies, if we keep the coronary perfusion pressure above 20, which requires an aortic relaxation or diastolic pressure greater than 30, that the animals are saved. And if we can't get them up to that, we don't have adequate myocardial blood flow and the animals don't survive. We also know that each time, uh, this is a, a representation of the uh, pink on the top is the uh, arterial uh, pressure or aortic pressure. The yellow is the right atrial pressure. And at the end of a compression, that distance right there is the coronary perfusion pressure. And every time we take our hand off the chest for a couple breaths, Blood is emptying out of the aorta, 
dropping the pressure, and it takes a while for it to grow, to, to go back up. So, uh, and that's going to be the critical factor in survival. So, um, we want to minimize our interruptions. They give us lower compression rates, they drop the arterial diastolic pressure, less blood flow, and they can um, result in worse outcomes. We want to avoid that. We also want to avoid leaning because in the low flow state, if you put extra weight on the chest, you make that right atrial pressure high and the flow doesn't come back. And also, uh, under very, uh, uh, blood goes uh, to the area of least resistance, and if your chest wall is popping open, and sucking blood back in, that's good. If you're leaving some weight on the chest in the low flow state, you decrease substantially um, the blood flow. And so in, in a swine study that we just did um, about 10 years ago, myocardial blood flow and cardiac index, when there was no leaning, were the, uh, were, were the, the numbers seen on this slide. When we did 10% leaning, uh, really only 1.7 kilograms of weight on the chest, a very small amount, we dropped almost in half the myocardial blood flow and the cardiac index. So we want to get the diastolic pressures up in the, uh, in the aorta, and we want to decrease that right atrial pressure and that uh, leaning in the chest. And just for further clarification, when you say leaning, so as you said, the, the force of compression is really getting the aortic diastolic pressure to the level it needs to be, but then the importance of full relaxation and not leaving any pressure at the end of that relaxation is what you're calling leaning. Right. And the importance of the full release is to drop the downstream pressure, the right atrial pressure, as much as possible to augment coronary perfusion pressure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, interestingly, we had always assumed since uh, during one other issue that's really critically important, especially in pediatrics, is uh, what do we do with, with airway and breathing? Over half of our cardiac arrests are associated with some sort of an acute asphyxial, acute respiratory compromise um, event. And we had always assumed that tracheal intubation during pediatric CPR was critically important. And we just did a, a study looking at a propensity matched uh, uh, controls for in-hospital cardiac arrests, looking at over 2,000 patients. And to our astonishing surprise, those that had tracheal intubation had a lower survival rate than those that did not have tracheal intubation. This is new data, it's just published a year ago. We really don't understand it yet. People have speculated that perhaps while we're trying to intubate, we're interrupting for too long the, the CPR, or perhaps during tracheal intubation, the quality of CPR isn't quite as good. We really don't know what's going on, but what we do know, the new message is, Tracheal intubation during CPR is high risk, and my supposition is as we pay closer attention to the details of, of CPR while we do that and minimize some of the adverse problems that, that we can uh, obviate this. But nevertheless, the new realization is tracheal intubation during CPR is a high risk period. One of the advantages of having you here, as opposed to reading your study, is to pull you out a little bit on this. Um, are, how would you, uh, rec what would you recommend to colleagues around the world based on this one study, uh, and as you know better than I, uh, corroborated an adult study which found the same thing, yes. that adults who were intubated in the midst of resuscitation had a worse outcome. And yes. Again, it seems to go against what we would know, but should colleagues around the world be changing their practice based on one study? What, what does it mean 
at the level of clinical practice today with that one study? So what it means to me when I'm in the room and the child has a cardiac arrest in our intensive care unit, it means number one, if I'm moving the chest well and ventilating effectively and, getting, and doing excellent CPR in the beginning of, of, of uh, uh, CPR and I'm getting good end tidal CO2s and, and, and seeing good chest movement, I'm gonna keep with, with the um, CPR, the chest compression part of the cardiopulmonary resuscitation is gonna be my focus and the need for potential defibrillation and uh, epinephrine are gonna be focuses and I'm gonna stay with the bag, mag, bag valve uh, um, uh, ventilation. If that's not effective, I'm gonna to need to put a tube down and breathe in some way or another and when I do that, I'm gonna try and do it in the most efficient way possible and uh, make sure that there's a, a minimal interruptions in, um, or, or minimal decreases in quality of CPR. Make sure that somebody's providing outstanding CPR right up until the time we're, we're gonna um, put the tube in. Um, that, I think that's changed what I've done in the past where I assumed that the ventilation was the most critical thing. I think right now it's get good ventilation, yes, but don't do it at the risk of prolonged periods of, of uh, no chest compressions. So as best you understand it, um, it's not the application of positive pressure via bag valve mass ventilation um, that's, that's harmful, but rather it appears to be, uh, as best you know right now, and from that slide you showed, uh, it's the interruption of compressions during tracheal intubation, bringing aortic diastolic pressure down to zero. It's that, it's that appears to be the mechanism by which this is So we're is not harmful. sure about the mechanism, but what we do know is when they're getting bag mass ventilated, they have better outcomes than those that got tracheal intubated. Mm -hmm. And I'm just guessing that it might be because we've interrupted longer than we appreciated. And now that we know about that, we may be able to obviate that problem. But that's the best guess in the year 2017. So bottom line of low flow phase, push hard, push fast, allow full chest recoil, and minimize, minimize interruptions. That's what we do know, and what we should do with ventilation, I, I gave you my best guesses. And um, as we all know, the, you know, the rate and uh, depth of compression, of course, is different for an infant than for a child, but if we took most of childhood from uh, preschool through adolescence, the general numbers that we should remember in our head, compression rate of at least 100, and the depth of compression about two and a half inches of, uh, was that about five centimeters? Five centimeters, two inches. So I'm gonna just say a couple things about medications. I don't wanna talk much about them because I really believe that the chest compressions are the key. Um, but um, we recommend still epinephrine, 100 micrograms per kilogram every three to, to, to five minutes. Whether that's right or not, that's our recommendations. And I'll talk a little bit about that. And uh, there's new data that lidocaine is just as good as amiodarone in the past. We, there was some adult data that suggest amiodarone might be better. The most recent very well-controlled trial in adults shows that they're about, e about equally effective for um, uh, a VF that's unresponsive to uh, defibrillation. There's a little bit of information about epinephrine, and that epinephrine data uh, we're showing in this slide shows that over time, the more minutes it takes till you give your first dose of epinephrine, the worse outcome. Truly, if you look at this figure very closely, it's really when you're more than a couple minutes to your first dose of epinephrine that it starts dropping. And remarkably, there's a, a, your uh, likelihood of, of surviving drops by about 5% with, with each minute delay till you give epinephrine. And this is some of the limited data that there are in the literature that in humans, 
giving epinephrine is associated with better outcomes. So Bob, we just reviewed, uh, what I keep in my head is compression rate at about 100 a minute and a depth of compression about two and a half inches, five centimeters or so, two to two and a half inches. Um, and, and away we go. Um, and you just described very well the, the real importance of avoiding disruption in that. But beyond that, um, and we pay attention to the fatigue of uh, the person doing the compressions, but beyond that, is it necessary to, is there data that shows that we need to understand that process even more than that? Absolutely. So uh, in 2013, the American Heart Association put out a, a paper about the quality of CPR, and um, they emphasized from a whole host of studies in, in children and adults that high quality CPR is the primary component influencing survival. It's more important than any of the other issues, the, the quality of your chest compressions. And they said, monitor the CPR, especially the coronary perfusion pressure and the diastolic pressure. But they acknowledge that they don't know what the right targets are. So it's a, it's a funny conundrum. It's sort of like follow the blood pressure, but we don't know what normal blood pressures are uh, in somebody who's in shock. Um, there are several ways that people have approached this problem in the last 15, 20 years. One of them is we can, you, we can look at the mechanics of CPR and there's devices made by multiple companies where you can measure the chest compression rate, the depth, and the residual leaning. Um, and uh, at, at our institution looking at in-hospital cardiac arrest, Bobby Sutton um, looked at uh, whether you, uh, how good we were doing and he found that 43% of the, of the segments of CPR, we weren't in the rate that was recommended in 2005 to 2010. 36% of the time, we didn't attain the depth we were supposed to do. And 36% of the time, there was, you, you could uh, see leaning during those uh, uh, compressions, all the things that we think are bad. Um, so the real question was, did that make any difference or not? And he looked back uh, a few years later, and in this slide you can see on the left-hand side, um, uh, in the light bars, you can see uh, patients that had adequate compliance um, with, the, with the guidelines, and there was a 74% uh, likelihood of survival of the event or return of spontaneous circulation versus 31% when we did not achieve that. And when you started getting to, to, to discharge, surviving to discharge and surviving with good neuro exam, you can similarly see a, uh, a, a two to four fold difference in survival uh, and good outcomes if you, if you kept the depth. There are lots of studies in adults with the same sort of information that attaining these mechanical goals that we recommend improves outcome. Um, so Bob, um, is that the right thing to be monitoring? Because it seems a little odd. It, 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 in most instances in uh, caring for a critically ill child, we're monitoring a physiologic response. But in this instance, we're monitoring the actions of a person leaning over the body. Is that the right target? So that's an excellent question. And we have felt over the last five years that we were going the wrong way and we're trying to study that first in animals and then in, in humans. Um, we asked the question that you asked, do we have the right CPR targets to monitor? We're looking at a mechanics as opposed to the hemodynamics, just as you said. So uh, we, came, we, we were wondering uh, uh, if that was the right way to, to approach things. Um, we did a set of studies that looked at uh, personalized approach to hemodynamic directed CPR. In this model, um, we did chest compression depth to, to create a systolic pressure of 100, and we gave vasopressors whenever the coronary perfusion pressure was low. 
and didn't give it when it wasn't necessary, as opposed to what I refer to as rescuer-centric CPR, when we push the same depth all the time, that takes care of my angst as I'm providing care, and giving epinephrine every four minutes. And when we did that, the animals that we provided uh, with the personalized uh, um, CPR that was hemodynamically directed had excellent outcomes. Eight of 10 survived uh, to 24 hours, and seven of those 10 survived with, with favorable neurological outcomes versus none of those in the standard way with this very severe insult from VF. We've similarly done this with asphyxial models, with um, uh, LPS-induced uh, systemic inflammatory response models, um, and we've done it with short-term outcome, with long-term outcome, and your suspicion is on the money. There's no place else in medicine that we would say, just do what you want to do as a doctor without looking at the response of the patient. And when you look at aiming for appropriate physiologic ta uh, targets, you can improve outcomes. Similarly, when we looked in this asphyxia model, when we looked at those that we, that we looked at survivors versus non-survivors, the survivors all get high coronary perfusion pressures. Those that didn't survive didn't, which supports the kind of knowledge we've known for many decades. So, um, uh, Dr. Berg, why don't we follow arterial blood pressure, in particular, obviously, as you've just pointed out, arterial diastolic pressure as the target? I think it's a lot historical. It turns out that the large burden that everybody's been worrying about is the people that have cardiac arrest in streets. People that die at home, the 300,000 Americans that have cardiac arrest at home each year. The practicality of blood pressure monitoring for that group is limited, and really that's been a lot of the focus of investigation over the last 50 years. Another thing is um, that, that uh, even when they're in hospital, until recently, many of the patients were on, on the wards. Uh, but now that we're increasingly getting patients into the intensive care unit that are at high risk of having cardiac arrest, we're finding out that most of the, of the uh, cardiac arrests are in intensive care units, and many of them have arterial blood pressure monitoring. At our institution, 60% of the children that have cardiac arrest have an arterial line in place, which allows us the opportunity to start looking at pressure. So I think we're going to change what goes on. But the big problem that still exists is we have animal data about what's the right goals, but we don't have adequate human data about what the right targets should be. So, Bob, um, uh, that makes me wonder about end tidal CO2. Uh, as you appro appropriately have noted, uh, a lot of patients don't conveniently have an arterial line in when they experience an unexpected cardiac arrest. Um, but most or many patients do eventually get intubated with the caveats that you just described. And then, of course, the ability to target end tidal. And, of course, in the adult world, a lot of, uh, of at least preliminary data, and maybe you can put this into context for us, suggests that um, you should be targeting uh, an end tidal CO2 of 10, 12 millimeters of mercury or better as an ongoing breath-to-breath, beat-to-beat measure that you have enough pulmonary artery blood flow from your external massage that you're doing adequate quality uh, CPR. Is that, an, is that an appropriate surrogate for, for children, or have I interpreted the adult data accurately to you? So it's a little bit different. What the data shows very clearly is if you have untitled CO2 less than 10 and it stays less than 10 in adults for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest or emergency department cardiac arrest, all of them die. So obviously you want to be higher than that. It doesn't show what's optimal, so it's a little hard to target there, 
But it's, it's sort of like saying 40 over 20 blood pressures, everybody dies. That doesn't mean that's what I aim for. I probably want to be higher, but we don't really know how high that is. And that's probably true for both children and adults, but the data is, is best uh, demonstrated in adults so far that if you're, if you're below 10, you better do something to bring that up. So that's a physiologic me measure that is available to many of us um, in our ICUs and lots of other settings regularly. So that's a great idea. And if you don't have an arterial line to look at arterial diastolic blood pressure, do you look at then end tidal CO2 and try to target uh, getting above uh, 10, 12 millimeters of mercury? Or do you look at the external factors um, of the activities of the person doing compressions? So we do both. We aim for mechan the mechanics of five centimeters because we know it's associated with better survival rates. And we want to see that end tidal CO2. And we're, when we're seeing uh, numbers below 10, we know we got to do more. Uh, and when we're seeing numbers that are much higher, we're feeling a little bit more comfortable, but we don't really know what the right place to aim is. But and, we look at both. And without mentioning any products, do you have a an automated device that you insert so that the person uh, doing the compressions is leaning on the device which is telling them the depth and the rate of compressions in a more accurate uh, way than just observer? When we have high-risk patients we actually have the, one of those devices, a mechanical device that you can put on the chest you can use for both defibrillation and for measuring and they have uh, you, they, they can look at uh, um, the compression depth and, and, uh, and forces and leaning, uh, and we have been using those with different products for the last 10 years. And again, without a Routinely. particular product, you think the quality of those products is that they're accurate enough that uh, they're potentially possibly worth it? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. They're used routinely in the pre-hospital setting in Europe and the United States, uh, and, and they almost think it's uh, um, inadequate care to use anything less than that. So you just very... Uh eloquently pointed out the problem of um, just because we know bad outcomes were associated with low, so below 10 millimeters of mercury and tidal is associated with a poor outcome, that doesn't, that doesn't guide us as to what's the optimal target for the end tidal or perhaps even for the arterial diastolic pressure. So how are we going to get a handle on this? How, does one, how do we answer that question? So um, we're part of a, of an NICHD, uh, NIH-funded uh, collaborative pediatric critical care research network, or CAPCORN, and as part of that group, we have we have uh, we're collecting we have collected for the last three years data about patients that are in cardiac arrest that had either end tidal CO2 or arterial blood pressure monitoring. I just presented at the Pediatric Academic Society's. Uh, data on 164 patients that had art lines in place at the time of CPR, and we have every single beat-to-beat -beat pressure, the full waveforms for the first 10, up to 10 minutes of CPR. Um, and what we hypothesized was that, like the animals, if you're above, a, if you're 10 kilos or bigger, or that is a, a, a more than a year of age, that if you had 30 millimeters of mercury aortic diastolic pressures, you were gonna have better outcome. And we had to make a, a something of a guess of what do you think is the right amount for under a year of age, and we guessed maybe 25 millimeters of mercury. And uh, the data are shown in this slide that shows that if you had those, those targets, um, the return of spontaneous circulation was 74%, uh, survival rate was 54%, and favorable neurological outcome was 49%. And they were much lower, as you can see, in the, in the, in the um, children that had uh, uh, diastolic pressures that were below what we thought were a reasonable target. Most importantly, when we did uh, 
multivariable analysis, including all the things that we know that influence outcome, duration, et cetera, uh, survival to discharge was 70% more likely if you met these targets of a, of a diastolic pressure greater than 30 more than a year of age and greater than 25 under a year of age. And survival to discharge was 60% more likely, uh, favorable survival to dis discharge if they met these targets. This suggests to us that the targets are a reasonable place to aim. We also did cubic spline analyses, and this slide shows uh, on the y-axis the probability of survival to hospital discharge, and on the x-axis um, the, the uh, mean diastolic pressure during those ten, first 10 minutes of CPR, and the, uh, the uh, above and below are the fifth and the 95th percentiles. And you can see that in these children under a year of age, when you drop below 20 millimeters of mercury, there was a, a, a dramatic drop in survival rate suggesting you want to stay away from 20 millimeters of mercury and get a target at least 25 millimeters, as we guessed. Similarly, for over a year of age, this is, these are the uh, cubic spline curves. And when you start getting down around 25, it starts dropping off and really drops off dramatically under 20, suggesting that a, a target of around 30 is probably a reasonable thing to do. These are preliminary data. They need to be um, fully vetted. Um, published, et cetera, but at least uh, um, th these have been presented as our initial findings as potential targets for blood pressures. In these same patients, we have uh, n-tidal CO2 data. It has not been analyzed in an adequate fashion for me to really answer your questions, but I want to be able to, to do that. So, Bob, um, I have to ask you, uh, you wear two hats. Uh, one hat is you're uh, a researcher in this field for decades, but of course in your your real hat, your daytime hat, your chief of critical care at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. What do you do um, in your intensive care units to um, translate these data into action? And what are you doing to improve performance and outcome? So the way we've looked at it is there's three approaches. One of them is to look at what we do for individuals. That's training, that's working with, with CPR practice. What we do with teams, and we do simulation studies of various sorts. We do like you do at your institution and many others. And then something we've decided that, that was important when we've been doing the individual and team practice for a long time and not seeing much improvement, we decided we had to change the environment. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a minute. So individual, V99 Carney came up with the most amazing, simple kind of approach that all of us can use in our intensive care units called rolling refreshers. He came up with a mobile cart that, that uh, just looks like a torso of a, uh, of a mannequin. It is a torso of a mannequin for a CPR mannequin. And just by coming over in the intensive care unit, bringing this cart over to the uh, uh, rooms of the sickest patients and have people practice for 60 to 90 seconds the CPR, um, we believe that it could improve the performance of CPR. And there's several studies that have shown that. Um, that that, that uh, frequent, uh, very brief CPR practice is the way to go. If you're going to throw a baseball, you wouldn't listen about the physics of how, how gravity affects a baseball or a soccer ball and you're trying to kick it. You go practice. And you don't have to practice all the time, just for a few minutes here and there. This is a study that, that, that we did uh, in, uh, with pediatric residents and pediatric nurses, and we had them first come up to this device and see how good are they, and 17% of the time, they gave adequate chest compression depths and rates and things like that. We just practiced for 60 to 90 seconds and they all got 
back up to 64%. One month later, we did it again. They dropped off a little to around 50%, went back up. One month later, we gave another booster, went back up. At the end of, uh, of six months, 70% of the time, they were able to uh, have excellent CPR. A dramatic improvement with just 60 to 90 seconds, not whole days away from work. The next thing we did is we worked with the team, but we thought we could do that with simulation sessions. But one of the problems that we had is that even though cardiac arrests are relatively common, between one and 2% of our patients have cardiac arrests, that's pretty common compared to many other things. In our 55 bed unit, with over 4,000 emissions a year, we only have somewhere around 40 CPR events, resulting in only two arrests per fellow, one to two arrests per attending. Residents have less than one event that they see in, in, uh, in, in a year. And of our 250 nurses, there's only about one to two arrests per nurse per year that they're involved in. And most crazily, if you multiply the 30 attendings times the 18 fellows, et cetera, there's 14 million possible teams. So forever, we've been having immediate debriefing so that that team could perform better. And that's nice. That's going to help each of them learn more that day. But they're never going to come together with that same team again. Um, and uh, we've also had warm debriefs, which is important for psychosocial warm psychosocial debriefs. We call warm debriefs right away. Cold debriefs is when we gather all the data and look at it later. A warm debrief right away is important for us to improve our skills, but it's probably not gonna change the environment and change the, it's not likely to help the next kid because it's gonna be a different group. It's good to have psychosocial warm debriefing to help us come to terms with the, um, uh, with the whole uh, psychosocial trauma of, uh, of cardiac arrest. But if we wanted to change the environment, we decided that we had to have interdisciplinary resuscitation debriefings where large groups of people from our unit, nurses, RTs, um, uh, physicians, got together on a monthly basis, went over all of our cardiac arrest, and we would go over the quality of the resuscitation. We'd give examples of excellence. We'd go over the usual systems issues, but we would specifically look at the details about team performance we'd look at specifically what was the patient physiology focus. So here's a, a real life example that we're showing here of a patient that you can see on the top is in normal sinus rhythm and on the bottom you can see arterial blood pressures that look wonderful. And all of a sudden there's a squiggly thing, it's VF. And then the blood pressure drops to nothing. But in this particular example, it was two minutes later that the cardiac arrest was noted. Well, when we have an example like that in our debriefing system situation, there's 60, 80, 100 people in the room. They look up there and we all look and see that flat uh, blood pressure and we all, our hearts stop. We have virtual experience and every one of us is thinking, oh my God, and the next time this comes up, we've learned how to approach this then, uh, so that the team, the environment is used to looking at waveforms and jumping to the re responses. If the group didn't, hadn't given medication that they should have given, you hear that from what other people's experience was and you virtually live that and you perform, improve the performance. Based on this data, we thought we could come back and use these debriefings and we, we had a, a fellow project where they, um, they looked for 18 months the, what, what kind of outcomes we were having with our usual 
advanced life support training, mock codes, rolling refreshers, and then we added these debriefings. Once we had six months of it under our belt, we felt we could look at the group of people before and after and see if we could improve performance. We thought that that was possible. And to our great pleasure, the number of patients that had the right depth, the right rate, the right CPR fraction, as you can see in the dark bars, uh, our, our post-debriefing improved, and the, and the sum total of excellent CPR, that is doing all the right things, went from 30% of the epics of CPR up to 60%. And that was what the purpose of the study was. We thought that was the whole deal. And we did something else. We said, well, we, of course, you gotta look at what the outcome is, but it's only a small number of patients. And to our surprise, the incidence of uh, survival with good neurological outcome went from 29% to 50%, and that was statistically significant. But more important than statistically significant, that was a really huge increase. So we believe that that's an approach that might make a difference. Um, and that's sort of been highlighted by a, a lot of uh, guidelines groups of, of this is the way everybody should go, but we're not really satisfied with that because that's one study, small numbers. And um, Bobby uh, Sutton, one of the young uh, people in our uh, uh, group at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has now embarked on a multi-center NHLBI funded um, uh, study uh, looking at 18 intensive care units to see if we can do this, whether this kind of debriefing um, that's physiology focused uh, can make a difference in improving outcomes. And there'll be more to hear about that over the next several years. Um, Bob, uh, finally, uh, you mentioned um, the post-cardiac arrest phase. Uh, it, often when you go through something so dramatic, it seems like this seems like a less dramatic period uh, but of course it's not. Yes. What should we know about the post-cardiac arrest phase? So what's very clear is the post-cardiac arrest syndrome as described in this uh, paper from the American Heart Association about 10 years ago, that there are four components we think about. The brain injury from, this, from lack of blood flow, the myocardial dysfunction after this ischemia reperfusion injury, and a, and a systemic inflammatory response of mediators very similar to those that you see in sepsis. Uh, that the body releases uh, in response to cardiac arrest. And of course, you, whatever started the cardiac arrest, that precipitating pathology still remains post-arrest. And looking at those four components, um, there's, a, there's a period of time that it's a very sensitive, uh, vulnerable period uh, for, uh, for, for long-term survival and good neurological outcome. Um, I'm not gonna speak in, in great details about it, except to say there's some obvious targets for us that uh, we might be able to address that might be able to result in better outcome. Uh, Alexis Topchin showed that uh, uh, hypotension, just one hypotensive uh, documented uh, um, uh, blood pressure less than the fifth percentile increased uh, in the first six hours post cardiac arrest, increased the odds of death by 70%. Uh, Thomas Conlon showed that uh, le left ventricular dysfunction by echo in the first 24 hours less than 40% ejection fractions, 14-fold increased uh, odds of death. Alexis uh, Topchin also showed that status epilepticus on an EEG, a continuous EEG monitoring on, uh, as a routine basis post-cardiac arrest, those that had status epilepticus were at a five-fold uh, increased risk of death. We don't have evidence of whether that's of the chicken egg in this. Is this a result of the, uh, are these just manifestations of bad cardiac arrest? Or are these targets that we might pre prevent secondary injuries? Strikes me as the way we intensivists do everything. 
that we could try and avoid hypotension, we could try and maintain LV function, we can try and treat aggressively status epilepticus, and that perhaps we could do, uh, we could help outcomes. We, there was a lot of excitement about targeted temperature management, but as most of the people here are, uh, know and that, that are listening to this, the FAPCA trial for in-hospital cardiac arrest really showed no difference whatsoever in those that got targeted normothermia versus targeted hypothermia. Um, we do believe that it's probably a good idea to avoid hyperthermia, which we know is associated with worse outcomes. So we recommend targeted temperature management, but uh, unfortunately it's not clear that, uh, that a lower temperature is, is any better than normothermia. Um, so bottom line of post-cardiac arrest care, myocardial dysfunction is common and frequently results in hypotension, so think about treatment with vasoactive agents to, to avoid those problems. Monitor the temperature and actively avoid hyperthermia. Monitor EEGs and treat seizures aggressively. Most of the seizures, by the way, are non um, are, are non-clinical seizures. That is, they're, they're status epilepticus on EEG without uh, convulsions. Um, and we believe I didn't uh, that 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 hypoxia and hyperoxia are problems. There's a little bit of evidence, not quite as strong as these other things, that both hypoxia and hyperoxia are problems. And we'd like to keep the uh, saturation somewhere in the 92 to 99% range, but not 100% uh, uh, with very high PO2s. Bob, last, um, I'm sure the question that uh, so many people are wondering, um, and certainly I'm wondering, uh, is there evidence to guide us as to how long we should give a resuscitation attempt? And if there's no return of spontaneous circulation, after X amount of time, we stop. What do we know about that? So remarkably, uh, until the last 10 years, there have been debates about whether we should stop at 10 minutes or 20 minutes, and there was remarkably little data about that. But recent data from the uh, Get With the Guidelines Resuscitation uh, database of in-hospital cardiac arrest in the United States, um, uh, we were able to analyze if you had CPR for 1 to 15 minutes, you, you had about a 41% survival. Um, if it was more than 35 minutes, it was way down to 12%. Or should I say way up to 12%? It was our surprise that any of them survived. It was 12% survival rate. Um, but the, the obvious question was, but after that prolonged of a CPR event, they're going to be devastated neurologically. And although the numbers look a little lower, they were not statistically significantly different, and, it's, and they were in the 60 to 70% range of favorable neurological outcome in both groups, suggesting that if you have good enough blood flow to bring the heart back, even with prolonged CPR, you're probably having good enough cerebral blood flow also to have a chance to, to have good outcomes. That's one set of data, and that's a broad set of data of hospitals uh, um, of all sorts, uh, small and large, and adult hospitals with children and children's hospitals. When we did the Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network, we looked at those 10,000 uh, 10, admissions for the PRISM-3 uh, evaluation by Murray Pollack. We looked at the 140-ish patients that had cardiac arrest, and again, we saw if it was one to three minutes, they had 66% survival, and when it got up to more than 30 minutes, it dropped way down to 28% survival. To our stunning surprise, 28% of the kids that had 30 minutes of CPR um, survived to discharge. So clearly, there's the longer it takes, the worse the outcomes, but it doesn't become um, futile, certainly does not become futile at 30 minutes, and we used to think so.
What's equally impressive is the neurologic outcome of those nine survivors uh, out of 32 that had CPR for more than 30 minutes was 25, was eight of the nine. So um, favorable neurological status is certainly possible with prolonged CPR. I don't know what the right duration of CPR should be, but one thing we do know is the old idea of 10 or 20 minutes was fallacious. So Bob, what are the key takeaways on what we should remember for those of us who care for critically ill child and um, concerning resuscitation? Absolutely, that's, that's the key is what's the big deal? The big deal is CPR in hospital, pediatric CPR is relatively common, one to 2% of our patients, yet it's rare for a whole team of people and it's rare for individual doctors and individual nurses. When we do CPR, we have to remember that there's somebody that without our help is dead and with our help we can save a life. Push hard, push fast, avoid interruptions, don't lean, and perhaps what we should be thinking about is physiologic patient-centered goal, centered goals like keeping the end tidal CO2 above 10, maybe even higher, and perhaps using it, uh, getting that arterial diastolic pressure for those of those uh, patients that have an arterial line in place, getting that diastolic pressure greater than 30 and over a year of age and greater than 25 under a year of age. And finally, practice your individual skills, debrief as a team, and provide the kind of post-cardiac arrest care that's consistent with the kind of critical care that we provide for all other circumstances. Well, Dr. Bob Berg from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, um, I know I speak for colleagues around the world. Thank you for all the research you've done Thanks. over several decades and for continuing to guide us to this moment. Thank you. This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision-making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.